And welcome back to the Ordinary Saints podcast. Uh, Richard, what episode are we now? This is number 14, I think. Wonderful. Um, and as you can see, I've already thrown Richard under the bus and we're only 14 seconds into the podcast. So It has been a tradition in this podcast, so you know. Yeah, it would just be rude to not do that now, right? So today we were talking about what we're going to talk about in this podcast and we thought let's talk a little bit about Christmas because of course we're not there yet, we're in Advent and our last podcast was about Advent but Richard has some fun ideas for us today and so I'll let you introduce that for us. Well I've been reading a book recently, A Christmas Cornucopia and it's a really fun book because it looks at all of the weird and wonderful things around Christmas. Like it's one of my real favorite go-tos around this time of year because Christmas is weird. It is weird. Yeah, it's super weird. There's so many things which you kind of take for granted, which you, which all of us take for granted, I'd suggest. <laughs> Just me, I take them for granted. <laughs> <laughs> Often we don't think about where these traditions have come from. So I've got some questions I'm going to throw at you and you can see what you make of them, Sarah. Are you ready to be put in the hot seat? Yeah, I'm in the hot seat. I'm ready. Go. Okay, so these are true or false questions. So question one, tinsel is put on Christmas trees because it looks like spider's webs. True. Yeah, that is true. I mean, it was probably going to be true, right? These aren't all just true or false. Some of them are, some of them are misleading, I'll be honest. Um, so, <laughs> so that is true. That is true. Um, and weirdly, that comes from a German story. Uh, and in the story... Uh, it talks about how basically all the animals were welcome into people's houses except for spiders because <laughs> people don't like all the cobwebs in their houses. Those poor spiders. Yeah, and so the story goes, um, but God basically took pity on the spiders and essentially was communicating to these people, no, everyone's welcome at Christmas, even the spiders, but to take care of the web problem, I will turn them into tinsel. Well, there you go. I love that. And I'm very grateful for my German friends right now. Yeah, I mean, I love tinsel. I actually had no idea before reading this book that it had anything to do with spider's webs. <laughs> there you go. It sort of feels like a bit of a fusing between Halloween and Christmas, eh? Like, I wonder if there's scope for us to bring back the spider's webs. <laughs> you, and I know you love tinsel. It's a bit more eco-friendly, though, isn't it? So a few years ago... I got a particularly large tree for in the parish I was vicar of, and it was huge. Uh, we got the biggest tree we could possibly get, which was magnificent. I'm all about the tree. We put on something ridiculous like 2,000 lights uh, to really, you know, hammer home the point that we have an amazing Christmas tree. <laughs> Obviously, at some point, there were spiders in the tree because I can remember coming into the church one day and like one whole side of it had been like, totally cobwebbed <laughs> and it was around the time that I first heard the story so I was just like the cobwebs stay the cobwebs stay this is part of our amazingly ornate huge well-lit Christmas tree is we're not gonna disenfranchise the spiders so there you go well I'm I'm proud of you see on our last podcast we decided that I wouldn't disenfranchise the weeds in the garden and this week you are now agreeing that yeah keep the spiders keep the webs so yeah if you have a Christmas tree and it's got spiders and cobwebs. It's cool. It's part of the tradition. Just go with it. So next question. Okay, I'm ready. Christmas pudding was invented not long after Jesus was born. True or false? 
Oh, I don't know the answer to this. I'll be totally straight up. And the reason I'm just going to give some context, I don't like Christmas pudding. No, me neither. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't have any reason to um, learn any trivia about it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say my instinct is to say no. So I'm going to say yes. Oh, you should have gone with your instinct. Oh, no. Okay. It, it wasn't made just after. And in fact, the weird thing is, is that Christmas pudding, it wasn't named Christmas pudding, but the actual stuff predates Christmas entirely. So uh, it existed. The idea of fruit and spices and kind of porridgey mess and stuff yeah. does predate any sort of Christmas festivities. The thing is, I, I don't like Christmas pudding, but I do love Christmas spiced tea which incorporates some of the stuff you just talked about, Richard, right? Like the kind of spices, the fruit, the herbs, that kind of stuff. I love that all about it. But yeah, I just, I don't like Christmas pudding. Never have. I don't think I ever will. Oh, look, I'll be honest. I have a particular hatred of Christmas cake. Uh, like it's the worst thing ever. Uh, they they say it's cake, but no, it's actually mostly raisins. It's right. And then you cover it in marzipan, which is the worst thing in the world. It's just, it's not good. It's not a good time. Oh, look, it's a lie. You know, they, they say it's great <laughs> and it's not. It's it's just a disappointment. Well, I'm glad we can agree there. Yeah, anything with raisins, and I'm um, just not part of it. Sorry, just call call me the Grinch, but I'm not. Yeah, mince, mince pies, forget those two. They're they, they are also a lie. You say mince pie in Aotearoa and it better be meat and it better be cheese with it. And that's just how I roll. Oh, that's great. Okay. Uh, you may know this one. Jingle Bells. Mm-hmm. A song written specially for Christmas. True or false? False. Do you know why that's false? No, I just do know that it's false because I've heard this before. Yeah, so it's written for Thanksgiving in America. And actually, if you hear all the verses, you suddenly go, oh yeah, this is about Thanksgiving. It's not about Christmas at all. And yet here in New Zealand, well, in our family, we sing the Kiwi jingle bells and my children are quite put out when they go other places and they hear Jingle Bells playing and it's not the words they know, which are the contextual New Zealand words which talk about, you know, chocolate fish and pavlova and various other (laughs) things that we associate (laughs) with New Zealand. I confess I've never heard the Kiwi version. Oh, it's tremendous. Well, Richard, you can send that to me later. We have a special rendition we do. It involves ukuleles and everything. So you you can look forward to that. Oh, I will, definitely. So in the Middle Ages... Churches sold ready-cooked gooses as a Christmas takeaway. I don't know. I'm just going to say it, it does sound like something that's plausible, so I'm going to say yes. Yeah, so this was in the UK. That It was believed that the Queen, well, it came into sort of popular consciousness that the Queen really loved goose as, <laughs> as her thing. And so, yeah, churches in England would, uh, for, a, for a low price, sell a roast goose because the queen gets to enjoy it, then everyone should get to enjoy it. As someone who has rehabilitated a goose, <laughs> this makes me feel a bit sick. <laughs> but, but also coming from a vegetarian, you know, it's, it's not the best. But, you know, Middle Ages, not as eco-conscious back then, maybe. Not as big on animal ethics. Maybe, maybe they were inundated with geese. Who knows? Maybe. But all I can say is that I would not get behind a synod motion for churches to be handing out carcasses. <laughs> <laughs> carcasses. So in England, there is a law that says if you go to church on Christmas Day, you have to walk there. True or false? What? Wait, hold on. Is this is this like now yeah okay i can't see that as being a thing so i'm gonna say no but i wouldn't be surprised if that was a thing at some stage 
it's totally a thing even it's now a thing? no way it's definitely an old law it's still on the books oh okay okay it's not necessarily enforced anymore but it's still there in law so i wasn't too far off then because there are a lot of weird old laws right that people totally don't practice anymore yeah but yeah it's still in the books that's amazing and in fact even if you rode your bike to church on christmas day <gasps> sorry you're a lawbreaker that that's an interesting one okay i'm learning a lot today so, so that was the last question, but I think let's, Richard, let's just go off the cuff here and do some tr biblical trivia on the Christmas story. Okay. All right. Is there a mention of an inn in the Bible? No, I know this one. There, there isn't. The word uh, in Greek uh, in the New Testament is kataluma, uh, which means upper room. Yes, correct. Okay. So when talking about this, I think it would be quite good to unpack the whole stable thing, right? Because there is this idea that Mary and Joseph, there was no room in the inn, quote unquote, which as we know is not actually in scripture. And so they were guided to a stable, presumably behind the inn. This is the story that's depicted um, to stay with the animals. And of course, we know that according to the history of the time, the archaeological evidence, et cetera, et cetera. That's not how it was. No, I mean, my understanding of that is that we're talking about sort of dwellings in first century Palestine where animals and, and people tended to cohabitate. And this idea of upper room is that there's probably a sleeping platform in this dwelling where, which was human habitation. And yet animals would often reside in quite close proximity. And so maybe, this is one of the explanations I've heard, maybe what they're saying is like, you know, the, the, the sleeping area, the, the upper room, the place where people habitated was so full, there wasn't room for them. So they essentially had to go and be with the animals. Yeah, on the first floor, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. being And it's not that whole idea of, yeah, Joseph wandering around. It's, you know, it's it's this night in winter. Where where are we going to stay? I've got nowhere to go. It was like, well, you're the last people to the tramping hut and all the bunk beds are full, so you've got to sleep in the tent. <laughs> That's what it more feels like to me. Yep, yep, for sure. And it's not to say that things like hay and animal droppings and actual animals weren't around at the birth of Christ. I think we know from that explanation that that's probably quite highly likely and that they were domesticated animals, um, like we see in the nativity sets that we have usually today. But yeah, the fact that they were probably most likely at the bottom of a multi-level complex, not that makes it sound like an apartment building. <laughs> it's really not like that. Um, but yeah, they were, they were sleeping where the animals would be, as opposed to up on the higher lofts or rafters where, you know, where it was considered better for humans to be. Yeah, so that's that's quite an interesting, I mean, it'd be good to see a modern day rendition of the nativity story uh, or scene based on some of that evidence would be quite cool, actually. What you've actually just reminded me of, because you talked about nativity scenes, and Interestingly, one of the places where I was taught about this particular understanding around the upper room and so on was uh, when I was in Israel, Palestine, a few years ago and was visiting the Wall of Separation. So there's a wall that runs right through modern Israel. And in fact, it actually cuts Bethlehem off from Jerusalem these days. There's a, uh, this wall that runs between. Interestingly, you can't walk a whole lot of the traditional routes to places because, you know, Bethlehem's on the Palestinian side and Jerusalem is on the 
uh, is on the Israeli side of the wall. Mm. There's a house which has been walled in on three sides and there's all sorts of things there. Banksy's been there and has done lots of painting and sort of protest <laughs> against the wall and so on. Uh, that's where it's all situated. But one of the things they were talking about there is that they made nativity sets where they've put a wall of separation into the nativity set. Oh, no way. You know, you have your manger and so on, and yet there's this wall sort of slap bang in the middle of it, um, kind of cutting you off from actually seeing what's happening in the uh, in the nativity sets. So. Oh, gosh, that's quite powerful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, speaking of, yeah, modern-day contextualisation, that's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, just the idea of Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus being considered refugees as well is quite a powerful piece. I know there's some icons that have been created to depict that. To change the tone completely, I have a different question, which I think, is a good one because we sing a song called Silent Night and we sing this quite often and I personally find this very hard to believe as a parent. Hang on a second, hang on a second. You said we sing it, but mostly my experience of Silent Night is people straining to sing Heavenly Peace, for example. (laughs) The high part at the end of Carol. It gets everyone. Yeah, and everyone's like, oh dear. Yeah, we needed to bring this down a, a few times. <laughs> yeah, we, we gauge that way too high. Or you have everyone dropping out except the choir on those notes, <laughs> depending if you've got a choir or not. But yeah, okay, so this idea that it was silent. First of all, probably not. Let's be fair. Yeah, I don't think it was written by someone who had children, right? Yeah, exactly. And then this other uh, lyric as well that we all know so well from Away in a Manger, which we sing a lot in churches, let's be fair. No crying he makes. Mm. And actually in this vein, another one that I think of is in Once in Royal David's City, there's the line of Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he. Well, there we go. So you as a parent, Richard, know, and I as a mother who has given birth twice, know also that what do babies do when they're born? They cry loudly and this is not something that is bad or is not a child misbehaving of course this is a sign that your infant has survived that your infant can breathe so I find that very odd and I've heard that many times and so yeah that is an extremely confusing set of lyrics or sort of rhetoric around around Jesus birth which just just makes no sense to me yeah it it is strange I think it's some of these some of these words and carols are really coming out of a different time. I, I, I hate that defense of, oh, it was a different time, but <laughs> I think there's definitely some parenting values that speak of a, of a time quite different to ours. Absolutely. And of course, not in the Bible that Jesus didn't didn't cry. So um, no, if no. you're if you're curious about that one. And speaking of children, Uh, around Christmas time and Mary and Jesus I'm just going to quickly I'm on my laptop now pulling up a great post from Sarah Park she's another um, priest in our diocese which I'm sure many of us have seen before here we go Mary exhausted having just gotten Jesus to sleep is approached by a young man who thinks to himself what this girl needs is a drum solo. <laughs> yes, I t- totally saw that post as well. And it did give me a chuckle. Exactly. I mean, I remember one time I was tired and I had to get a present for some kids for a mother who had just recently given birth. Now, I was really strung out myself with a young kid and I was like, oh, what am I going to get them? What am I going to get them? You know, to keep them distracted, right? 
and went to Trade Aid and bought, you know, a couple of things and bought these little birds and they're beautiful. They're like these hand-painted birds. And I thought, wow, these are gorgeous and they're in the colours the boys like. I'm going to get those. Little did I know, Richard, they were whistles. (laughs) They were whistles. Classic parenting mistake here. It was such a big mistake. And as soon as the boys opened these and started to blow on them, I just thought, oh, how did I miss that? And this poor mother now with a newborn child now has, you know, the older two boys, but not much older, let's be fair, blowing on whistles. I mean, it was just a massive parenting fail. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, yeah, so sorry um, if you listen to this, my about that. But also, yeah, drum solo, uh, drummer boy. This whole idea um, in that in that carol, also not in scripture, um, but equally ridiculous. Let's be fair. I mean, if someone tried to come do a drum solo in front of me with a newborn child, I would be sending them out pretty pretty quick. So I'm wondering if you're also familiar with another carol, which tells the story the day after Christmas about a person who would later go on to be a 10th century Bohemian murder victim. And we sing it to a 16th century Finnish folk melody. Does this ring any bells to you at all? I mean, no. Like, what What are you referring to? Uh, so this is Good King Wenceslas. Oh, I haven't heard that, I don't think. Ah, oh, so I quite like that, that hymn. But yeah, it's set on the Feast of Stephen. Uh, and it tells the story about how this king goes out and essentially, you know, helps a, a person in trouble. And the Feast of Stephen, of course, is the day after Christmas. But yeah, certainly growing up, because uh, I grew up as a chorister and sang in choirs. In fact, often you'd start three months out from Christmas going and doing the rounds and singing carols, you know, in train stations and all that sort of stuff. And we would always sing this particular carol. How does it make sense? How does it fit in, in Christmas? But there it is, you know, it's it's one of these other things that's been swept up and included. Yeah, we do get a lot of these things wrapped around, eh? As we've highlighted today so far in the podcast, quite a few of those. (laughs) Can you think of any other biblical trivia around Christmas? What about the three kings, quote unquote? I think there's you know quite a lot of thoughts around who they are and what they are. Well, here's a here's a really interesting aside. Twenty years ago, some of my family lived in the Middle East and they lived uh, in Saudi Arabia and. As many of you all know, there is not a significant Christian population in Saudi Arabia, but it was when I went and lived there for a period of time and did acquire a nativity set. And the interesting thing was when it came, it only had two figures for the Magi, not three. And I've grown up in that tradition. Another bad caroler, we three kings. Well, as I say, the Bible doesn't call them kings, it calls them Magi. And it doesn't actually give us a number at all of how many there are. What it does tell us is that there are three gifts. And interestingly, the person from whom I bought this nativity set said, and I said, why are there only two? Is there a figure missing? And this person said, no, no, no. Gold is a gift and frankincense and myrrh is one gift. Oh, okay. Hence they had two two figures. That's very cool. I haven't heard that before. But again, it makes that point, right, of no, actually we're not told how many there are. We're told that there are three gifts and there are, so we assign a gift to each person. Here we go. Here's my next thing. So this isn't biblical trivia, but in tradition, the three magi are given names. Do you know what the three names are? I don't off the top of my head. Uh, and you know what? This puts me to shame, Richard, because I actually wrote a piece <laughs> about these three um, names. And But obviously they're, they're 
been a legend that's kind of developed but I did I wrote a piece and I can't remember but I'm gonna offer you this this is coming from a person myself who sucks at any kind of trivia that's based on names I honestly can't remember actors names I can't remember authors names I can't remember people's names like I have a very good photographic memory and this is absolutely 100% me trying to defend myself here but yeah that it's true so you need to know this about me name recall absolutely shocking but there we go no I can't remember the names off the top of my head well I would say I'm actually really terrible with names as well but I do know the names of the three magi in tradition so in tradition they're given the names Balthazar Melchior and Casper. I feel like I'm digging a big hole because I've just said I'm not very good with names. So the next time I run into someone in public who's heard this and they'll go, do you know my name? And I'll be like, sadly, I do know the name of the three magi in tradition and I can't remember yours. I can't remember yours. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the sad thing is I'm probably more likely to remember the name of someone's pet, which I can't explain. I really can't. It's like my brain has selective name recall. These three characters have, through the years of tradition, developed their own names, their own personalities in some cases. Um, And often there's one magi that is depicted of a different ethnicity to the others as well. And of course, there's so that reflects the various stories that have developed around these characters. But as you said before, we don't know how many there were. We just know that there were three gifts they certainly weren't kings it's likely that they probably were quite well esteemed in a particular craft and as we know that's astronomy very much studying of the stars etc there's so much that we wrap around these narratives to to create and to continue a story that makes sense to us and it works well for our nativity scenes you know having X number of you know magi is probably a bit harder than having these three iconic figures or two, in your case, Richard, for your nativity. But yeah, good to keep it good to keep in mind because I think it's funny how these traditions become so cemented that we fail to look back and reread the text or reread the birth narratives of Christ and to see whether those are actually there. Because recently I did talk to someone who who genuinely thought that the word in was in the Bible. Mm. Uh, and so that it's just a you know a reminder that so often our stories develop and and take on personalities and narratives of their own over time. One of my favorite Gary Larson far side cartoons depicts <laughs> the Magi arriving with another one sort of slinking away and the caption says unbeknownst to most theologians there was a fourth wise man who was turned away for bringing fruitcake (laughs) well that ties in beautifully to our conversation earlier Richard it does it sticks out in my mind because of my my loathing (laughs) of fruitcake well there you go there is actually another myth which is called the story of the fourth wise man which essentially tells a story an an imaginative story about another magi who gets waylaid for a whole bunch of reasons and also has a gift and i think that from memory it's been a long time since i've encountered the story but i think the climax is is that essentially this person ends up arriving at the time of the crucifixion that's how waylaid they have become oh my goodness that, that's like we're nearing sort of 40 years in the desert vibes there. Pretty pretty much. I'm sure there, there will be a listener out there who's like, yes, I know that story. I can inform you more. Yeah, yeah. Be good to know. I think what all these things point us towards is the fact that there is this amazing thing that happens with Christmas where it is an evolving tradition. I know in some communities I've been a part of, there's often this desire to strip away 
parts of the tradition and say, well, that's not really authentic. That's not really biblical. Jesus is the reason for the season, that kind of quote, and want to sort of pull back and say, no, we want to get back to what, what Christmas is really about. And look, there are some aspects of that I'm on board with. I don't love the rampant commercialism that seems to go with Christmas these days. Mm. So I do get that there's some tension around these things. But what I've come to appreciate as I've gotten older is that really it is this glorious mishmash that as the tradition has developed over time and new people have come to experience the story of Christmas, they've added things to the tradition. They've said, we've got something to contribute to the story, to the celebration, to be a part of it in our own special way. And that's happened in so many ways. It's happened with the spiders and their tinsel. <laughs> you know, it's happened with this weird thing of, you know, standing under mistletoe, mistletoe, this parasitic <laughs> shrub. You should only ever kiss with consent, everyone. I'm just saying. Totally, totally. No, one should always, always kiss with consent, whether or not there is mistletoe present. Indeed. Yeah, I think you're right, Richard, in that, you know, tradition is actually a big piece of the puzzle. Um, and it can be misleading at times, but when we talk about it in the big picture of the church tradition, actually we stand on that as part of our developing identity as the body of Christ. Um, so we've got, you know, we stand on a few things, actually, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. All of these things come into play in terms of the unfolding story of what it is to be the body of Christ in the world. When it when that relates to Christmas, we can we can embrace tradition and and even if we know that you know these aren't historically accurate, uh, we can value them for what they are. These contributions that have become tradition over time, whilst keeping in mind as well that there's there is actually another uh, version or narrative or some details that perhaps weren't in the original accounts. But I think it's all it's all part of the the fun and the uh the richness of this tradition that we have you know so well latched onto and so we should but to come back briefly richard i i also really struggle with the consumerism that's wrapped itself around christmas i do see this as a as a big issue and just to put on my you know eco hat again just revisiting from the goose situation <laughs> look, look I'm not a judgmental vegetarian look if you eat meat I'm, this isn't a go at you I'm just saying it's just it's just personal more in terms of eco with packaging and stuff like that I would love to um put out a wee challenge for all of us this Christmas let's be creative with our packaging eh mm, what a good idea yeah, let's use um, fabric. I, I love to get old curtains or old big, big sheets of fabric from the op shop cutoffs. They make wonderful wrapping paper, quote unquote, um, which you can reuse year to year. If you're really skilled with a sewing machine, you can even hem the paper. Um, once again, not paper, but you know. You can also use natural fibers to tie up these uh, presents. You can use sacks. You can paint pillowcases and make special packaging for these presents as well you can give live gifts like um, plants etc uh, you might even have a living christmas tree as your you know there's so many different ways we can actually try and consider the environmental impacts of our traditions as well because this comes around every year and is mass celebrated across the world so i think it's something that you know we need to be thinking about actively as well when we consider the poverty of christ's birth I suppose, you know, I remember being in a couple of cathedrals in my life, thinking about the story of the birth of Christ and looking at these majestic, huge, beautiful buildings, which, um, you know, I'm not saying I'm not for cathedrals um, at all, but it is interesting to notice the contrast between the story 
and that we read about in scripture, you know, with Jesus being born with the animals on that bottom floor or in that, you know, stable context. And with Mary, who's just traveled a long way with Joseph um, and they're sort of fleeing for their lives, really, um, or at least for, you know, Jesus' life as well. And they're under pretty harsh circumstances. So I think, you know, when we consider the dirt and the hay and the you know, the feed around them. And then we consider the, the consumerism of Christmas. Um, I think it does. That's a really powerful way that we can cut back through our tradition a bit and keep ourselves in check in terms of what it is that we're celebrating and how it is that we're honoring that story. Yes. So if you, and if you don't want to buy your own living Christmas tree, of course, you can through an nativity project, uh, you can spend $10. You could either gift this to someone else as a present or uh, it can be a contribution from your family. Um, $10 to Trees That Count and they will plant a native tree on your behalf in Aotearoa. Uh, and that is, of course, contributing to our ngahere here in Aotearoa. So you can get on board with that. Um, again, visit uh, the Nativity Project NZ on Facebook. Uh, same uh, Instagram handle, the Nativity Project NZ. That'd be very cool and something tangible you can do. Oh, I love that idea. I'll, I'll be honest. I love a real Christmas tree. Uh, I mentioned it last week. There was a good chance we were going to get a tree in. We do have a tree in. But I do have that sense of, oh, now there's one less tree out there. But you've just given <laughs> me the perfect solution, which is uh, I can contribute to the planting of native trees. So exactly. I will definitely do that uh, to make up for the one pine tree I've uh, I've taken and put in my house. That's right. And, you know, imagine if all of us that bought Christmas trees also had a native tree planted. How cool would that be? Well, there we go. We didn't quite know where we were going with our talk about Christmas today, but I love talking about it because I love the season. And as I said, I love the great big mishmash of it all. I do love the tinsel. I love the trees. I love the carols. Even though I sit there totally analysing them as we have in this podcast going, wow, these don't really speak to our time in the same kind of way. <laughs> we didn't talk about the number of contemporary carols we have in New Zealand too, which I also really love and embrace because for me, sometimes it's about going, yep, we've just got to do it all and embrace it all. And right at the heart of it, you know, there is this profound statement of God does want to experience everything that we experience and share in our lives deeply, so much so that God became one of us. And for me, that's what it boils down to. Uh, it's a profound story. It's a profound narrative and it hits me every year. Uh, and it's good. I love it. it. It connects deeply. Absolutely. It's one of the massive seasons of our church year. And of course, we are still in Advent. So let's just remind everyone of that. Um, and we don't want to skip too quick to Christmas, but we didn't know how many more podcasts are going to come out before then. So thought it would be a good thing to um, get under our belt, get under Santa's belt. Oh, sorry, I did that. Um, but yes, we did it. And thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, um, please email us at, at ordinarysaintspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to uh, read out some of your emails or engage with your questions. It's been awesome to chat with you today and, well, to chat with you, Richard, and to have you along for the journey. You're good. We'll see you, fingers crossed, next week for, uh, for a final one for the year. 